Chapter 19 of Fidelity by Susan Glaspell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Cyrus Holland died just before daybreak next morning. It seemed to Dean Franklin that he had only just fallen asleep when the telephone beside him was ringing. When tired out, he slept through other noises, but that one always instantly reached, a call to him that got through sleep. He wakened just enough to reach out for the phone, and his hello was cross. Was there never a time when one could be let alone? But the voice that came to him banished both sleep and irritation. It was Ruth's voice, saying quietly, tensely, Dean, I'm sorry, but we want you. There's a change. I'm sure Father's going. He was dressing almost the instant he hung up the receiver. To Amy, who had roused, he said, It's Ruth. Her father's going. I can't do a thing, but they want me there." At first Amy made no reply. He thought nothing about that, engrossed in getting dressed as quickly as possible. When she burst out, "'So of course you're going!' he was dumbfounded at the passionateness of her voice. He looked at her in astonishment. Then, for the first time the other side of it, as related to their quarrel about Ruth, turned itself to him. "'Why, of course I'm going, Amy.' he said quietly. "'It makes a difference who it is, doesn't it?' she cried stormily. "'The other night when somebody called you and there wasn't a thing you could do, you said so. You told them they mustn't ask you. But this is different, isn't it?' The words had piled up tumultuously. She seemed right on the verge of angry, tumultuous tears. He paused in what he was doing. "'Why, Amy!' he murmured in real astonishment, and then helplessly repeated in tender reproach, why, Amy!" But she laughed, it seemed sneeringly. He colored, quickly finished dressing, and left the room without saying anything more. When she heard the front door close, heard Dean running down the steps, she sat up in bed and burst into tears of rage. Always that woman, running away to her in the middle of the night. He didn't have to go. There was nothing for him to do as a doctor. He could do nothing for a man who had been dying for a couple of days. He said that just a couple of nights before when someone wanted him to come. But this was Ruth Holland. She had only to telephone. Of course he'd go anywhere, any time, for her. Her sobs grew more and more passionate. Her head down on her knees, she rocked back and forth in that miserable fury only jealousy and wounded pride can create. This gathered together, brought to a head, the resentment accumulating through a number of incidents. That afternoon she had gone over to the Lawrences to thank Edith and her mother for the flowers from the tea which they had sent her that morning. They had urged her to run in often, to be friendly. Her unhappiness about her talk with Dean the night before, when he had actually proposed that she go to see this Ruth Holland, made her want to be with friends. She wanted to see people who felt as she did that, though it did not so present itself to her, she might fortify herself in the conviction that Dean was preposterously wrong and she taking the only course a good woman could take in relation to a bad one. She was prepared to feel that men did not see those things as clearly as women did, that it was woman who was the guardian of society, and that she must bear with man in his failure to see some things right. She had been eager to strengthen herself in that feeling, not alone because it would, in her own mind, get her out of reach of any possible charge of hardness or narrowness, but because it would let her break through her feeling against Dean, she wanted to get back to the days of his complete adoration of her, back where his passion for her would sweep all else out of their world. She knew well enough that Dean loved her, 
but there was a tightened-up place around her knowing that. It made her miserable. Things would not be right until she found a way through that tightened-up place, a way that would make her right and Dean wrong, but would let her forgive, largely and gently understanding. Such, not thought out, were the things that took her to the Lawrences that afternoon. It was apparent that Edith had been crying. She and her mother were gracious to Amy, but there was a new constraint. She felt uncomfortable. When they were alone, Edith broke out and told her how she was just sick at heart about Ruth. Dean had been there that morning urging her to go and see Ruth. Instantly there was all anew that tightening up that held her from Dean, that feeling against him and against this Ruth Holland, that was as if something virulent had been poured into her blood, changing her whole system. Edith cried as she told how Dean and her mother had quarreled because he felt so strongly on the subject and didn't seem able to understand her mother's standpoint. Then, she too wanting to set herself right with herself, she went over the whole story, the shock to her, how it had hurt her ideal of friendship, had even seemed to take something from the sanctity of her own marriage. She silenced something within herself in recounting the wrong done her, fortified herself in repeating the things she had from her mother about one's not being free, about what the individual owed to society. Amy went home in a turmoil of resentment against her husband. It was hard to hold back the angry tears. A nice position he was putting himself in, going about the town pleading for this woman whom nobody would take in, estranging his friends, yes, probably hurting his practice. And why? Why was he so wrought up about it? Why was he making a regular business of going about fighting her battles? Well, one thing it showed. It showed how much consideration he had for his own wife. When she came in sight of their house, it was harder than ever to hold back the tears of mortification, of hot resentment. She had been so sure she was going to be perfectly happy in that house. Now already her husband was turning away from her, humiliating her, showing how much he thought of another woman, and such a woman. She did not know what to do with the way she felt, did not know how to hold from the surface the ugly things that surged through her, possessed her. Until now she had had nothing but adulation from love. A pretty, petted girl, she had formed that idea of pretty women in youth that it was for men to give love and women graciously to accept it. For her vanity to be hurt by a man who had roused her passion, turned that passion to fury against him, and made it seem that a great wrong had been done her. As she approached, she saw that Dean was standing before the house, talking to a woman in a vegetable wagon. He had one foot up on the spoke of the wheel, and was talking more earnestly than it seemed one would be talking to a vegetable woman. Doubtless she was one of his patients. As she came up, he said, "'Oh, Amy, I want you to know Mrs. Herman.' She stiffened. His tone in introducing her to a woman of what she thought of as the lower classes, seeming just a new evidence of his inadequate valuation of her. "'Your husband and I went to school together,' said Mrs. Herman, pleasantly, but as if explaining. "'Oh,' murmured Amy. Dean abruptly moved back from the wagon. "'Well, you do that, Annie. Ruth would love to see you, I know.' So that was it. She turned away with a stiff little nod to the woman in the wagon. Always the same thing, urging Tom, Dick, and Harry to go and see that woman. Taking up with a person like this, introducing his wife in that intimate way to a woman who peddled vegetables, just because she was willing to go and see Ruth Holland. She didn't know that she had to stand such things. She didn't know that she would. 
She guessed she could show him that she wasn't going to play second fiddle to that Ruth Holland. Dean came to the door of the room where she was taking off her hat. Her fingers were trembling so that she could scarcely get the pins. "'That little woman you were so chilly to is a pretty fine sort, Amy,' he said incisively. "'Because she is going to see Ruth Holland,' she retorted with an excited laugh. "'Oh, you were pretty standoffish before you knew that,' he answered coolly. Vanity smarting from deeper hurts made her answer haughtily. "'I'm rather inexperienced, you know, in meeting people of that class.' In his heart, too, there were deeper disappointments than this touched. "'Well, I must say,' he began hotly, "'I think if I felt as snobbish as that I'd try pretty hard to conceal it.' Amy was carefully putting away her hat. She had an appearance of cold composure, of a sense of superiority. It was because she wanted to keep that that she did not speak. The things within would so completely have destroyed it. "'I guess you don't understand, Amy,' said Dean, quieted by her silence. If you knew all about Annie Morris, I think you'd see she is a woman worth meeting. Thinking of his talk with Edith and her mother that morning, he added, a good deal of feeling breaking into his voice, a good sight more so than some of the people you are meeting. And of course, she could not hold back, they, those inferior people, won't go to see Ruth Holland and this wonderful woman will. That's the secret of it, isn't it? It's one thing that shows her superiority, he replied coolly. Another thing is her pluck, grit. Her husband is a dolt, and she's determined her three children shall have some sort of a show in life, so she's driven ahead, worked from daylight till dark many a time, to make decent things possible for them. "'Well, that's very commendable, I'm sure,' replied Amy mildly, appearing to be chiefly concerned with a loose button on the wrap she had just taken off. "'And with all that she's kept her own spirit alive. She's not going to let life get clear ahead of her, either. She's pretty valiant, I think.' He was thinking again of Edith and her mother as he added contentiously, "'I don't know any woman in this town I'd rather talk to.' Amy, appearing quite outside the things that were disturbing him, only smiled politely and threaded a needle for sewing on the button. He stood there in the doorway, fidgeting, his face red. She seemed so uncaring. She seemed so far away. "'Oh, Amy!' he cried miserably, appealingly. Quickly she looked up. Her mouth, which had been so complacent, twitched. He started toward her, but just then the doorbell rang. "'I presume that's your mother,' she said, in matter-of-fact tone. Mrs. Franklin was with them for dinner that night. Amy's social training made it appear as if nothing were disturbing her. She appeared wholly composed, serene. It was Dean who seemed ill at ease, out of sorts. After dinner he had to go to the hospital, and when she was alone with his mother, Amy was not able to keep away from the subject of Ruth Holland. For one thing, she wanted to hear about her. She was avid for detail as to how she looked, things she had done and said, that curious human desire to press on a place that hurts. And there was, too, the impulse for further self-exoneration, to be assured that she was right, to feel that she was injured. All of those things it was easy to get from Mrs. Franklin. Amy, not willing to reveal what there had been between her and Dean, and having that instinct for drawing sympathy to herself by seeming self-depreciation, spoke gently of how she feared she did not altogether understand about Dean's friend, Ruth Holland. Was she wrong in not going with Dean to see her? Mrs. Franklin's explosion of indignation at the idea, and the feeling with which, during the hour that followed, she expressed herself about Dean's friend, Ruth Holland, 
acted in a double fashion as both fortification and new hurt. Mrs. Franklin, leader in church and philanthropic affairs, had absolutely no understanding of things which went outside the domain of what things should be. The poor and the wicked did terrible things that society must do something about. There was no excuse whatever for people who ought to know better. That people should be dominated by things they ought not to feel was perversity on their part, and the most willful kind of wickedness. She had Mrs. Lawrence's point of view, but from a more provincial angle. Dean did not get his questioning spirit, what she called his stubbornness, from his mother. Added to what she as a churchwoman and worker for social betterment felt about the affair was the resentment of the mother at her son's having been, as she put it, dragged into the outrage. She grew so inflamed in talking of how this woman had used Dean that she did not take thought of how she was giving more of an impression of her power over him than might be pleasant hearing for Dean's young wife. The indignation of the whole Franklin family at what they called the way Dean had been made a cat's paw was fanned to full flame in this preposterous suggestion that Amy should go to see Ruth Holland. In her indignation at the idea, she gave a new sense of what the town felt about Ruth, and she was more vehement than tactful in her expressions against Dean for holding out that way against the whole town. "'It just shows, my dear,' she said, "'what a woman of no principle can do with a man.' Amy, hurt to the quick in this thought of the mysterious lure of a woman of no principle, remarked casually, "'She's wonderfully attractive, I presume.' Mrs. Franklin was not too blunted by indignation to miss the pain that was evident in the indifferently asked question. Hastily, more hastily than subtly, she proceeded to depreciate the attractions of Ruth Holland, but in the depreciation left an impression of some quality, elusive, potent, which more than beauty or definite charm gave her power. Edith, too, had spoken of that something about Ruth, a something one never forgot, a something, she said, that no one else had. And now, awakened by Dean's having been called by this woman in the night, herself alone there and he hurrying to Ruth Holland, the barriers of pride broke down, and she cried because she was sorry for herself, because she was hurt and outraged that she should be hurt, because for the first time in her whole life she was thwarted, not having her way set aside. She completely lost her hold on herself, got up and stormed about the room. When she looked at her face in the mirror she saw that it was hideous. She couldn't help it, she didn't care. The resentment, rage in her heart was like a poison that went all through her. She was something that didn't seem herself. She thought horrible things and ground her teeth and clenched her hands and let her face look as ugly as it could. She hated this woman. She wished some horrible thing would happen to her. She hated Dean Franklin. The passion he had roused in her all turned into this feeling against him. She wouldn't stand it. She wouldn't stay there and play second fiddle to another woman. She, a bride. Fresh tears came with that last. Her mother and father would never have treated her that way. They didn't think Dean Franklin good enough for her anyway. She would go back home. That would make things pretty hard for him. That would show what this woman had done. And he'd be sorry then, would want her back, and she wouldn't come. She finally found control in that thought of her power over him used to make him suffer. Dean, meanwhile, was hurrying through the streets that had the unrealness of that hour just before morning. That aspect of things was with him associated with death. Almost always when he had been on the streets at that hour, it was because someone was fighting death. It was so still, as if things were odd. And a light that seemed apart from natural things was formed by the way the street lights grew pale in the faint light of coming day. Everyone was sleeping. 
all save those in a house half a dozen blocks away, the house where they were waiting for death. He was on foot, having left his car down at the garage for some repairs after taking his mother home. As he slowed for a moment from a walk that was half run, he thought of how useless his hurrying was. What in the world could he do when he got there? Nothing, save assure them he could do nothing. Poor Ruth! It seemed she had so much, so many hard things. This was a time when one needed one's friends, but of course they couldn't come near her, on account of society. Though, his face softened with the thought, Annie Morris would come, she not being oppressed by this duty to society. He thought of the earnestness of her thin face as she talked of Ruth. That let in the picture of Amy's face as he introduced them. He tried not to keep seeing it. He did think, however, that it was pretty unnecessary of Amy to have talked to his mother about Ruth. All that was unyielding in him had been summoned by the way his mother talked to him about going home, going for him, like that because he had wanted Amy to go and see Ruth. That, it seemed to him, was something between him and Amy. He would not have supposed she would be so ready to talk with someone else about a thing that was just between themselves. There had been that same old hardening against his mother when she began talking of Ruth, and that feeling that shut her out excluded Amy with her. And he had wanted Amy with him. Hurrying on, he tried not to think of it. He didn't know why Amy had talked to his mother about it. Perhaps it just happened so. Perhaps his mother began it. He seized upon that. And Amy didn't understand. She was young. Her life had never touched anything like this. He was going to talk to her, really talk to her, not fly off the handle at the first thing she would say. He told himself that he had been stupid, hard, a bungler. It made him feel better to tell himself that. Yes, he certainly had been unsympathetic, and it was a shame that anything had come to make Amy unhappy. And right there at first, too. Why, it was actually making her sick. When he went back after taking his mother home, Amy said she had a bad headache and didn't want to talk. She was so queer that he had taken her at her word, and had not tried to talk to her, be nice to her. It seemed now that he hadn't been kind. It helped him to feel that he hadn't been kind. And it was the headache, being roused in the night when she was not well, that had made her so, well, so wrought up about his answering the call of the Hollands, old patients, old friends. He was going to be different. He was going to be more tender with Amy. That would be the way to make her understand. Such were the things his troubled mind and hurt heart tried to be persuaded of, as, thinking at the same time of other things, the death to which he was hurrying, how hard it would be for Ruth if Cyrus didn't speak to her. He passed swiftly by the last houses where people slept, and turned from a world tinged with the strangeness of an hour so little known to men's consciousness, softly opened the door, and stepped into the house where death was touching life with that same unreality with which, without, day touched night. Miss Copeland, wrapped in a bathrobe, sat in the upstairs hall. "'He's still breathing,' she whispered, in that voice which is for death alone. In the room Ruth and Ted stood close together, the nurse on the other side of the bed. Ruth's hair was braided down her back. He remembered when she used to wear it that way. He had one of those sudden pictures of her, on her way to school, skipping along with Edith Lawrence. She turned, hearing him, and there was that rush of feeling to her eyes that always claimed him for Ruth, that quick, silent assumption of his understanding that always let down bars between them. But Ruth kept close to Ted, as if she would shield him. The boy looked as Dean had seen novices look in the operating room. There was nothing for him to do beyond look at his patient, 
and nod to the nurse in confirmation that it would be any minute now. He walked around to Ted and Ruth, taking an arm of each of them, and walking with them to the far side of the room. "'There is nothing to do but wait,' he said. "'I wish Harriet and Cyrus would get here,' whispered Ruth. "'You telephoned. Before I did you, but of course it's a little farther.' They stood there together in that strange silence, hearing only the unlifelike breathing of the man passing from life. Listening to it, Ruth's hand on Dean's arm tightened. Soothingly he patted her hand. Then, at a movement from the nurse, he stepped quickly to the bed. Ruth and Ted, close together, first followed, then held back. A minute later he turned to them. "'It's over,' he said, in the simple way final things are said. There was a choking little cry from Ted. Ruth murmured something, her face all compassion for him. But after a moment she left her brother and stood alone beside her father. In that moment of seeing her face, before turning away because it seemed he should turn away, Dean got one of the strangest impressions of his life. It was as if she was following her father, reaching him, as if there was a fullness of feeling, a rising passionate intensity that could fairly overflow from life. Then she turned back to Ted. Cyrus and Harriet had entered. There was a moment when the four children were there together. Cyrus did not come up to the bed until Ruth had left. Dean watched his face as, perfunctorily subdued, decorous, he stood where Ruth had stood a moment before. Then Cyrus turned to him and together they walked from the room, Cyrus asking why they had not been telephoned in time. Dean lingered for a little while, hating to go without again seeing Ruth and Ted. He tapped at Ruth's door. He was not answered, but the unlatched door had swung a little open at his touch. He saw that the brother and sister were out on the little porch opening off Ruth's room. He went out and stood beside them, knowing that he would be wanted. The sun was just rising, touching the dew on the grass. The birds were singing for joy in another day. The three who had just seen death stood there together in silence. End of chapter 19